The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Take your Bibles and go over to the book of Acts. going to read again Acts chapter 13 and beginning at verse number 13 and we'll read all the way to verse 41 just to give the full context of of Paul's message in Pisidia Antioch. Beginning at verse 13 the Bible says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga they arrived in Pisidia Antioch And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with an outlip." Sorry, with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years." After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. And after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one who is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the thing spoken of you in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had witnessed in Salamis on the island of Cyprus, and they'd dealt with opposition to the gospel with, coming from Elemis. And they'd seen Sergius Paulus, among others, believe the gospel and come to faith in Christ. The next they traveled from Salamis to Paphos on the coast, and then by sea from Paphos, learned landing in a place called Atalia on the coast. And then they traveled 16 kilometers on foot to there, the city of Perga. And although Luke records no preaching here at this point, in Acts 14, verse 25, on the return journey, they do preach in Perga. And sadly, it's also from Perga that Mark returns to Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas continue on to Pisidian Antioch, which turns out to be no small feat. The most likely route that they took is about 160 kilometers traveled on foot. It takes over a week, crossing over the Taurus mountain range, which my commentators say is a very difficult journey. They travel on the Via Sebasti, and it would have been a strenuous, difficult trip. They arrive in Pisidian Antioch, which is one of 16 cities named Antioch in the honor of Antiochus, who was the father of one of Uh, Alexander the Great's generals who went around naming all these cities after his father. It was a prosperous Roman colony with approximately 5,000 Roman citizens who made up only a minority of its population. And there is very clearly a Jewish synagogue, a Jewish population in Pisidian Antioch. And in verses 14 and 15, we see that Paul and Barnabas joined that local synagogue worship. In the first century, Jews met roughly three times uh, a week for worship. They met on the Sabbath day, on the second day, and then the fifth day of the week. And their worship was in some ways a lot similar to ours. They began by reciting Israel's confession of faith. They recited the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 and Numbers 15. They offered up prayers and they sang psalms and the scriptures were read, including the law and the prophets and sometimes the writings as well. And that was followed by a sermon or an exhortation based on the texts that were read. Those sermons and exhortations were given usually by a rabbi or a similarly trained teacher. Uh, We often miss this point, but Paul of, I should say, Saul of Tarsus that we know as Paul the Apostle was regarded now by scholars as probably one of the greatest, most learned men in that age amongst his people. And so he would have been recognized and known. And this is Saul of Tarsus. And so they they send word through the group. If he had an exhortation to offer, would he offer it now? And in verse 16, 
Paul and Barnabas are invited, and so Paul rises, and in Greek Hellenistic fashion, he motions with his hand. I kind of wondered what that meant, and one commentator said it simply means he kind of, his hand would be out and his thumb uplifted, and it was basically a way of saying, listen up, and he would begin to speak. Um, He most likely stood behind a central pulpit. uh, You remember that Jesus, when he taught in the temple, he sat down and all the people sat around him as he taught. Well, in the synagogues, it was different. Everybody, like you do, they all sat down. In fact, synagogues looked a lot like our churches today. The only difference is, and I I thought about doing this for about a half a second and thought it would be a bad idea, Turn all the chairs around like the synagogue, and the synagogue chairs faced across each other, and the guy stood at the far end. So whoever was preaching, if you wanted to fall asleep, you could just turn your head slightly away from him, and he wouldn't notice. Whereas this way, I can see whoever is sleeping and who's not. I've never identified the sleeper from the pulpit yet, but I could do. I could start today, I suppose. Anyways, he begins his sermon, and what we have written out for us in the Acts chapter third. Try again. What we have written out for us in Acts chapter 13 is in all likelihood a greatly condensed version of Paul's sermon. Uh, Luke was not there. He was not traveling with them yet. And perhaps it was retold to him by Paul or Barnabas himself. Perhaps it was recounted by some of those Pisidian Antioch believers. And so Paul has brought this sermon But this is a condensed version. It's probably not everything that Paul said that morning. But God, the Holy Spirit, in His wisdom and in His grace, knew exactly what believers needed to hear. Luke is writing to a Gentile, God-fearing audience. And so what he puts down here is not so much for the Jewish audience. Well, it is, but not so much for the one that was listening then, but it's very much for us for today. So Paul brings his sermon to the Jews and God fears in Pisidian Antioch. And he has in mind accomplished several things. And I took and I put on your sermon note sheet, there's two sermon outlines. One's the Apostle Paul's outline on one page and the opposite page is my outline. So you can see how Paul is broken up. And it's very interesting the way he structures his sermon. First of all, in verses 17 to 25, Paul gives a historical account of Israel, and he uses Israel's four-point confession of faith as his rough outline. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, God chose the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God redeemed his people, thirdly. And fourthly, God gave them the promised land as inheritance. And as you read his sermon, you can kind of see that outline just working its way through. Secondly, in verses 26 to 31, Paul's story of God's salvation. And now what Paul does is he transitions from Israel's confession of faith and he uses a very recognized Christian confession of faith, which you can pick it up uh, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. And that's this. That first, that Christ was crucified and died. Secondly, that Christ was laid in a tomb. Thirdly, that Christ was raised from the dead. And fourthly, Christ was seen by many. And then he moves on from that, and actually, verses 23 to 32 kind of overlap that section, and he shows there the gospel's fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Once again, Paul uses four statements to make his point. I'm not going to list them now. We'll get to them next week. And you can see the rest of his outline of his, his sermon that he does there. The question is, does Luke's written abbreviated account of Paul's sermon have anything to say to us for today? 
And the answer, of course, is yes, absolutely. He has lots to say to us. Notice that Paul addresses his sermon not only to the Jews in the synagogue, the descendants of Abraham, but he also addresses it to those who fear God, the Gentiles that are there as well. Now, of course, the historical dealings of God with the nation of Israel is not specifically Gentile history, but as Paul writes in Galatians 3, verse 7, he says, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And all those, Jew and Gentile, who have the same faith as Abraham had, we are considered by God to be Abraham's children. So Luke's recounting of Paul's history of God's dealings with Israel has very much to say to us. Our God in whom we believe and trust is the one true unchanging God of the Bible. In Malachi 3, verse 6, the Bible says, For I, the Lord, do not change. In Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus is described as the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. That's a wonderful foundation for our hope is that God does not, He cannot change. He's unchanging in His person, His promises, and His purposes. The God we deal with is the same in character and attributes as the God of the Old Testament people of Israel dealt with. Paul's historic account of God's dealing with Old Testament Israel serves to point us to and remind us of the Lord our God, in whom we're called to fear, to believe, to trust, to love, and to serve. If you read through verses 7 and 23... And when I do my sermon prep, I take colored pens and I mark up the different uh, types of words. You take all the verbs from 17 to 23 and look at who's doing the action. You discover a really cool thing. It's God doing all the actions in those verses except for one thing. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So in all those actions, we can see God's gracious dealings with his people. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us all to listen to Paul's descriptions of God's gracious dealings, to be challenged, to be challenged about our relationship with God, to be refreshed. I want you to walk out of here refreshed in the Lord this morning, renewed in your affections for the Lord our God, to be stirred up. Because brothers and sisters, on days like today, when it's gray and drizzly and rainy, it's so easy to say, you know what, I think I'll just stay home from church and maybe I'll watch the video later or maybe not. And you, know, and you just kind of let yourself kind of slide back down into bed, right? And who here didn't feel that temptation this morning? Yeah. And we need to be stirred up. We need to be provoked. We need to be encouraged and refreshed in our love for the Lord, our affections for the Lord, our God. So notice, first of all, in verse 17, Paul says, God chose their fathers. God graciously chooses men and women to be his people. God is sovereign in his election of people to saving faith. Paul is speaking of Israel's fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we know that he chose Abraham according to his sovereign purposes. We know from Romans 9 that he chose Isaac, not Ishmael, as the son of promise. We know he chose Jacob and not Esau, even while they're in the same womb, before they were born and before they had done anything good or bad. God chose. 
The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7 that God chose Israel, the smallest and weakest of the nations, to be His special people. In Romans 9, verses 6 to 8, we've got to remember this. It is, Paul says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. In other words, it's not all the physical sons of Israel that are included in God's true Israel. God did not choose, God does not choose on the basis of ancestry. God does not choose on the basis of anything inherent in you or I. God chooses the undeserving to be recipients of His grace. God chose the weak, the base, the foolish, and the despised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. So brothers and sisters, we're free to enjoy, to rejoice in God's sovereign choosing of us to be the recipients of His love. But brothers and sisters, listen. We must never, ever become arrogant or prideful that God has chosen us. It is only by God's sovereign grace that we are chosen. The more we know, the more we understand of our sin against God, the utter undeservingness of ourselves, the greater will be our understanding of God's grace in choosing us. You often make the joke, you know, if I were the Lord, I wouldn't have chose him. <laughs> Look in the mirror. If I were the Lord, I wouldn't have chose him either. But God in grace, in matchless grace, chose us. Let's rejoice, let's give thanks and worship our God by living our lives in faith and obedience to the God who sovereignly chooses those who are not his people to be his people. Notice secondly in verse 17. The Bible says He made them great during their stay in Egypt. God graciously blessed and increased His people who were enduring painful opposition from Pharaoh and through the slave masters. Pharaoh's thinking perhaps was like this. If you throw their male babies into the river, if you enslave and beat and overwork their adults, surely they will decline in strength and cease to have children, and surely the sons of Israel will fade and cease to exist. And so he tried. But God, in His grace and His kindness, remembering His promises to Abraham to bring Israel back to the promised land, He brought the destroying purposes of Pharaoh to nothing. Instead, He caused the people to greatly increase. When I read those words, beloved, you know what I think? It reminds me that we have no need to fear opposition, persecution, difficulty, or trouble. For our God has repeatedly shown His people His blessing of increase and enlargement when faced with opposition. How do you make the church grow? Crush it. Because when you crush the church, God has this amazing ability of greatly increasing the church. You look down through church history, look at the story of persecution and trouble all through the church history and what you see again and again, time and time again, the man tries to stamp out the church, but God causes to greatly increase and flourish. 
Persecuted Christians and oppressed churches don't fade away. They're not driven out of existence solely because God's gracious increasing of His people. How great, brothers and sisters, how kind, how gracious is the Lord our God to us this day. And my question for all of us is, do we believe this? Because I know about you, but I find it easy at times to see what's going on in our world and get to be a little bit fearful. And I have to keep reminding myself that when God's people are under oppression and persecution, God greatly increases. Increases and strengthens the witness. People were amazed when they went into behind the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain back in what were the 90s, I guess, when the, the Iron Curtain began to fall. And they discovered that the church was anything but weak. In fact, it was far stronger and far more effective in its witness than all the Western churches. And in fact, I found out a little time after that that the Russian church was sending missionaries to America. (laughs) There's a switch. Listen, God greatly increases His people when they are under persecution. Our God is the very same God today, yesterday, forever. Our God has not changed. And God is working and He's going to increase His people even when oppression and persecution comes. We have no need, brothers and sisters, to fear oppression. Notice thirdly in verse 17 that He led them out of Egypt. Our God is the God who graciously leads us out of slavery. For the first time in Israel's history, God brought redemption for those who had publicly testified to their faith in God by painting the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintel of their homes. There was indeed salvation from every firstborn inside the house as the angel passed over at midnight. God broke the yoke of Israel's enslavement in Egypt for the second. And God in that moment also pointed down through history to another infinitely greater Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose lifeblood would be shed and soaked into the upright and the crossbeam of His Roman cross. He would. He will, for all who trust in Him, lead us out of slavery to a far greater taskmaster, and that's our slavery to sin. Just as, it, just as it took one night to remove Israel from Egypt's borders, so also it took one night on the cross for Christ to save us. And just as it took 40 years to remove Egypt's influence from Israel, so also it takes a lifetime of following the God who leads us out to remove sin's influence in our lives. But our God graciously led Israel. Try it again. Our God graciously led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Our God, the very same God, is leading us out of our Egypt of slavery to sin's influence. Yes, absolutely. In a moment, the power of sin was broken in our lives. The moment we trusted Christ. But the reality is, still, sin still exerts an influence by its presence there. And all through this life, God is working and leading us out of that influence that we might live lives that are pleasing and holy before the Lord our God. Notice fourthly in verse 18, He put up with them in the wilderness. That's a great line, isn't it? God put up with them. And you read that. Yes, you were reading Deuteronomy this morning, and He talked a little bit about that. 
And you read through all the stories of these grumbling, complaining uh, people being marched along from one place to the next, and they're always complaining about something. And, and it sounds just like us, doesn't it? But God graciously, patiently endured Israel's repeated failure and sin in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit, as he inspired Paul's sermon and Luke's writing, left the accounts of their sin in the wilderness untold. Isn't it striking? In his historic recapping to the Jews in that synagogue, he doesn't talk about the golden calf incident, he doesn't talk about their refusal to enter the land, doesn't talk about all their grumbling and complaining, their wanting meat, their hating manna, all that. He just skips right over it and says, God put up with them. Brothers and sisters, what hope that gives us. For our God has not changed. He's still putting up with His people as us. He's still putting up. He's gracious and He's patient with His people to know as we go through this life that God is patiently walking alongside us, enduring our struggles, our weaknesses, and our failures to know that God walks through the valley of the darkest shadows ever with us, never to leave us, nor to forsake us. And when the way gets hard, and it does, we know He'll carry us through those valleys. To know that God patiently disciplines us as a loving Father, as He did with Israel, to bring us to repentance, to renew our faith and obedience to Him. That is a great reassurance to my soul, and I hope to yours too. We walk with a God who is patient. Uh, they, somebody asked John MacArthur once, if you could go back to being that 35-year-old or 30-year-old preacher that began all those years ago, what piece of advice would you give you yourself? And John MacArthur sort of looked down for a moment and he kind of played with his Bible and he said, you know, I think I'd tell a young John MacArthur to be a lot more patient with people in the church. And brothers and sisters, isn't it true? that we can be really impatient with one another. Uh, Let me put that a little more clearly. Isn't it true that I, your pastor, can be really impatient at times? But our God is a patient God. For all those years of all that whinging and complaining, He endured. He patiently walked beside them. And our God doesn't let us get away with things. He disciplines us to bring us back into walking in alignment with Him. How great is the grace of God that puts up with us, enduring our weaknesses and our failures. But beloved, listen, this must never become an open door to continuing in sin that grace might abound in the presumption that grace will abound. That grace must move us to thanksgiving, to repentance, to an unceasing desire for holiness, to utter dependence on God's grace, to be pleasing to Him in every way, every day. God endured. God was putting up with them patiently. Notice fifthly in verse 19, the Bible says that He destroyed their enemies and distributed their inheritance. God went before them to fight the kings and armies of Canaan. God displayed to them His power to defeat all their enemies in the defeat of Jericho. Remember the story? Some stories in the Bible are just great, you know, and it's so cool. Here's a great big city with great big walls, and everybody's inside it. You know what you're going to do, Israel? You're going to conquer that city. Great. Where's the siege machines? Where's the, the AK-47s and the bazookas and the bombs and the... No, 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 no. 
uh, the priests will put on their garments, okay? And they're going to go out and they're going to march in front of the army all the way around. And you're just going to walk around the city, right? So we'll walk around, then we'll bomb them. No, you just walk around, then you come back to the camp. Then they'll know how many of us there are. Yes, they will. Well, then they'll know what we look like. Yes, they will. Then they'll know who to shoot at. Yep, they will. So come back, right? And then the next day, go out and do it again. In fact, I want you to do that for six days straight. You can see the, the guys, you know, the guerrilla warfare guys are just, what? We're going to march around. And then, oh, by the way, on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. Lord, do you know how tired we'll be by the end of seven times around? We'll be exhausted. We'll be lucky if we can lift a sword or hold a shield anymore. We'll be worn out. Yeah, when you do, you're going to shout. And when that shout happens, you know what's going to happen to city walls? If you were to knock a city wall down, which way would you push, in or out? Which is easier? Out. Absolutely. You'd push the walls out. They excavated Jericho. You know where they found the rubble? On the inside. Because God leaned out and went, and the walls fell flat. And the people of Israel conquered. And God showed them in that moment that God was able to defeat every enemy they have. And brothers and sisters, our God has defeated our enemies. And our enemies weren't people with big walls. Our enemies were things like sin and death and hell and the grave and the devil. Christ defeated every single one of those enemies on our behalf. Yes, the people of Israel went into the land, and yes, they spent, I think it was 12 years going up and down the length of the land. Yeah, they carried sword and shield. Yes, they got into battles, but you know what? God fought every battle for them. And the one time they didn't go out in the strength of God's providing They allowed unknown sin to remain in the camp. They went out, instead of seeking God's wisdom and God's direction, and they went out and they were crushed and driven back by a little tiny space called Ai. And God showed them that when sin is allowed to remain, there will be defeat. Brothers and sisters, God fought our battles. God won those victories. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is absolutely true. When we allow sin to remain, there is a loss of victory. There's a loss of joy in this Christian life while sin is allowed to remain. And just time out for a sec. If you're here this morning and you've allowed sin to creep into your life and you can't figure out why your life just has seemed to become a real grind, And you seem to be fighting the same battles with a great wrestling and you seem to gain almost no victory. My question to you on the authority of Scripture is take stock. Look back over your life to see where God, what God has shown you and what you have refused. Look back over your life using the Word of God as a magnifying glass to see your life clearly and see what sin has been allowed to creep in, to settle, and to remain. It's hindering your walk. Because when it happened to Ai, it's exactly what it was. And they had to deal with the sin and get rid of it, put it out, and crush it. But listen, brothers and sisters, God has defeated our greatest enemy. No enemy can defeat us or take our salvation from us. Because Christ defeated those enemies in his death on the cross. And when we are in Christ, those enemies are are ours and they're gone. They're defeated. 
Paul writes a great exposition in Romans 8, sorry. And he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No weapon fashioned against us shall stand, neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present or things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God in magnificent grace has defeated all our enemies. Brothers and sisters, the victory is won. And while we still wrestle against sin and we wrestle against temptation and the power of the Spirit, the victory is already ours in Christ. Don't, don't let sin drag you down. Don't let it make your walk a crawl. And don't let the crawl become a stop. Deal with that sin in your life before God and get rid of it that God might give you again that joy of walking with Him. Joshua and the people of Israel dealt with Achan and his sin. They went out and they won a victory in God's hand. But you know what? There's even more. He hasn't just defeated our enemies. He says that He distributed to them their inheritance. And Old Testament Israel was given the whole land of Canaan as God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But in disobedience and faithlessness, they failed to take and occupy it as they were commanded to. Theirs was a gift of immense grace of God to them. And our God has not only defeated our enemies, He has also promised and provided us an infinitely greater inheritance. Our inheritance from God is the unfading, unceasing, incomprehensible enjoyment of God's presence for all of eternity. You can keep your billions. We've got God. Amen? You can keep all the rubble, gold and jewelry and diamonds and money and all that stuff, lands and houses. We have God Himself as our inheritance And God's inheritance to us as His eternal people. Sorry, we are God's inheritance. Think about that for a second. God is our inheritance, and the Bible says that we are God's inheritance. Who got the better deal? We did, right? Our inheritance is the unfading, never-ending, never-ceasing joy in the presence of God for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is so staggering in its immensity to consider that we've been given the infinitely greater inheritance of God Himself. What gives us strength to get up in the morning? That God is with us. What gives us strength to keep going every day that God has chosen us? What gives us strength to keep walking when the day gets difficult and the road gets long and hard? It's the fact that God is with us, enduring and putting up with us and walking with us to keep us walking with Him. And what gives us hope to keep going is the inheritance that is waiting at the end of that road. And that's God Himself. Paul's sermon preached to Jew and Gentile, sketched out in simple terms, displays to us a God of tremendous grace. In grace, He chose the fathers, and in grace, He chose you and I. 
In grace, God made them great, even under persecution. In grace, God prospers His church, even under persecution. In grace, God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And in grace, God is leading us out of slavery to sin's influence. In grace, God put up with them in the wilderness. And in grace, God patiently endures us. In grace, God defeated their enemies and gave them the inheritance. In grace, God defeated our enemies and gave us an infinitely greater inheritance. But notice sixthly, in verse 20, He also gave them judges, shepherds to lead them. Paul's historical account has seen Israel established in the land. And as Moses had led the people and died not going into the land, and Joshua had led the people and died once they were in the land, so now, without leadership, God's people continually wander. They fall repeatedly into the sins of surrounding nations. So God in grace raised up leadership for His people. Judges who served like under-shepherds raised up by God for a time to shepherd and lead His people. And those judges called the people of Israel to repentance. They called them to renewed faith in God. He called them, they called them to return to obedience to God's Word, to lead as God Himself delivered them. And you can read the whole story in the book of Judges. God knows. He knows that His people, like sheep, need a shepherd. God knows that we, all of us, need men and women of God to set an example of godliness and holiness for us to follow. God knows that His people, even us, who are filled with the Spirit of God, and even us who have the gift of God's Spirit-inspired Word, which they didn't have so much, We still need the grace of God's provision of shepherds. And when I say we, I mean exactly that, we. I need shepherds in my life. I need men to come alongside of me and and give me the Denozo head slap and and tell me to straighten up, straighten out. (laughs) Don't we all need that once in a while? Absolutely we do. We need it all the time. We still need the grace of God's provision of shepherds who work like God's sheepdogs to guide His sheep under the authority and control of God's Spirit. And so God in immense grace gave them judges until Samuel. And God in immense grace still gives to His churches elders and pastors and elders' wives and pastors' wives to be used by God to shepherd His people. How great, beloved, is the grace of the Lord our God unchanged in his dealings with his people in these simple ways. I was going to look at verses 21 and 22, and Paul's uh, describing Israel asking for a king. It's the only action they're described doing in the whole passage. But I'm going to come back to that next week, because there's a link between them asking for Saul and getting, or notice that God raised up David, and he raised up Christ. There's no mistaking Paul's use of terms. We're going to come back to next week. So last of all, last of all this morning, in verse 23, God in immeasurable grace brought to Israel a Savior. And this is a perfect finishing point for all of this. 
Because as you read the Old Testament, what you need to see is a pointing forward, an expectation, failure after failure of God's men, God's kings that failed, God's prophets that failed, God's priests and judges, they all failed. All of God's leaders, all God's people failed. And that failure kept pointing towards the New Testament. And the whole message of the Old Testament is, there's someone coming. And from David's descendants, God raises up Jesus as a Savior for His people. You can see in all those points that we just went through, they're all pointing towards Christ. They're all pointing to the One who would come. And of all God's gracious dealings with His people, is there any greater grace than this? that He provided His only unique Son to be our Savior, to suffer and to die, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to be raised again from the dead, to ascend to the highest throne in existence and be seated beside His Father to save His people from their greatest slavery, which was sin. So what does all of this say to us as God's people? Just as God in grace did all of those things for His Old Testament people, so in immense grace, God has not changed a bit. He chose us as surely as He chose the fathers and the nation of Israel. He is increasing and prospering us in the face of persecution and oppression, just as surely as He made them great under oppression. God is enduring and putting up with us day by day as surely as He put up with them in the wilderness. God has destroyed and defeated our enemies as surely as He defeated seven little puny kings in Canaan. God has given us an immense inheritance, brothers and sisters, as surely as He distributed the land to them as their inheritance. God is giving us shepherds to lead, to feed, to call us to obey, as surely as He gave them judges. He has given us, us, Jew and Gentile alike, He's given us Christ to be our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. What does all this demand of us? What's it require of us? To see the glory of God's grace. To open your eyes as you read the Bible and look to see God's grace. Brother and sister, as you go through your life, not only in God's Word, but absolutely beginning there, look to see God's grace all over your life in the mundane things, in the profound things, in the relationships with family and friends and neighbors and work colleagues, in your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church, look to see the grace of God at work. Brothers and sisters, I think one of our greatest problems is we're so internal, self-centered, work-centered, we're so in our own little tunnel zone that we don't see God's grace constantly at work in our lives. Plead with God to see that grace. Look to see it in the Scriptures and look to see those same things happening in your life. God has not changed. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God, a loving Savior. He's a loving Father, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He hasn't changed. Don't ever get this idea in your head that somehow the Bible stories and the Bible characters endured and experienced something infinitely different than you and I do. 
We experience the same God. You say, oh yeah, but they had miracles and they had you know, columns of fire and angels coming across desert floors and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah, we have the Spirit of God in us. We have the completed Word of God in our hands, on our phones, on our tablets, computers. I got more copies in the Bible than I know what to do with. I'm still buying them, but it doesn't matter. I still have more, you know, we have more Bible than you can imagine. And the problem is we start to get this idea in the back of our heads that somehow it's all different for them and somehow we have to refigure it all out. No. Go back to the Scriptures. Mind the Scriptures every day to see the evidence of how God works and look to see it in your own life day by day. See the glory of God's grace. Be amazed. We've gotten so used to the glitz and glamour and lights and special effects and high-tech of our world that we have lost the ability to be amazed. I was watching a, a TV show. My boys and I are like Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. We went to the movies. It was great. And uh, there's a new thing, Rings of Power or something on it. And we were watching one of these episodes, and I was just, like, stunned at the effects and all that stuff they're putting on for a a free TV show. And it almost got ordinary. You realize you go back 60 years and get your parents or your grandparents to sit down in front of a TV and watch something like that? They'd run into the cupboard and hide for fear. It would be so shocking to them, right? You know what the great problem is with all of that stuff? We have lost the ability to be amazed. And when you realize that the God that we love and serve, the God who called us, the God who has made us His children, His sons and His daughters, is infinitely beyond anything that some production company can create with CGI and a few props and effects. No matter how many billion dollars it costs to do it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, see the glory of God's grace. Be amazed at God's gracious provision. Be amazed at God Himself. Isn't it true that we're so internal focused, so me focused, that as we read and see these things, all we're thinking about is, how does this affect me? What does it say to me? It's all about me, right? No, it's not. The Bible was not written about you or me. It was written about God. Brothers and sisters, as you see God's, uh, Paul's sermon explaining all these things about God to the people of Israel, reminding them of the God that they know and serve, stop and be amazed simply at who God is and what God has done. It requires us to be rejoicing in God's gracious dealings with us as our Lord our Savior, and our King. And brothers and sisters, reading those descriptions of God's dealings with Old Testament Israel is a call to us to carry on, to not give up the race, to deny ourselves even more day by day that we might follow a little closer to the Lord. It reminds us and calls us to pick up our cross and follow Christ even further down the narrow road that leads to life, to step in under the yoke that He offers to share His burden, to walk with Him, knowing the immense grace of God in dealing with us. 
How great is our God. How great is our God. What an amazing God we love and serve to do all these things. And when you read, you go back and read the law, read Genesis and Exodus. You read the stories of Israel in the wilderness and how they repeatedly turned their nose up and wrinkled their nose and wound up and complained and grumbled about all that was happening and how much they missed. Brothers and sisters, our God is a great God. His grace is so amazing. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praises begin? It begins in how you live your life and how you respond to Him. Let's pray and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You this morning, O God, for grace so abundant, so rich. Father, to think that You chose Abram and You chose Isaac and You chose Jacob and You chose a poor, small, struggling weak nation of slaves to make them your people. Father, you chose the weak and the poor and the base. You chose the ignorant. You chose the things that are not to shame the things that are. And Father, we realize with an awakened understanding of your grace that you've chosen us. Father, we hang our heads in shame yet again, O God, at how much we have grumbled and complained and drifted and wandered away. And we thank you, O God, for the grace of putting shepherds in our lives to call us back to walk alongside you. Father, we we hang our heads in shame and we marvel at the same time at your grace in putting up with us day by day. But Father, when we turn our eyes towards the cross... And there we see the Son of the living God, scourged, beaten, bruised, insulted, and spiked to a cross and lifted up off the earth, even abandoned by you for a time, that we would know forgiveness of sins. Father, we just it takes our breath away and there's, we don't have words left to say but to say thank you and to lift up our hearts in worship for the living God who has displayed such immense grace to men and women who are so undeserving. Father, we cry out to you for a work of your Holy Spirit in all of our lives. Lord, you know from this pulpit to the back doors, Lord, you know every one of us. Father, you know, you know, what we need to do in response to this morning. We pray, O God, that your Spirit would provoke us to do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.